Hi, this is Sam Chamberlain, and welcome to Things to Ponder, the sermon podcast from St. Mary's United Church of Christ in Silver Run, Maryland. Follow along with St. Mary's at stmarysucc.org or on Facebook and Instagram. Wishing you peace and good, my friends. So I wonder if you ever have exchanges like I sometimes have within my house or with friends of mine or whatever where you're like, that's not the question I asked. Like, I, somebody was telling me, I'm, I must attract animal stories. So somebody, I, somebody was telling me this story. They were dealing with a parent, you know, who, you know, it was a little bit difficult. And he's like, I asked my mom if she had seen the cat because the cat likes to go outside and run around in a spot. And I didn't see the cat anywhere. So I was like, mom, where's the cat? And mom responds, I didn't let it out. Okay, that's not what I asked. Mom, where's the cat? And like all good moms do, I told you I didn't let out the cat. Like, would you answer the question? More to the point, or, you know, my, my favorite, because I am a really, like, painfully punctual person. Ask my family. My spiritual gift is arriving places on time. All right, that's just, I don't have many gifts. That's one of them. I'm very good at this. But this would never happen in my house. But, like, the a conversation of, like, when are we leaving? Well, we have to be there at three. Okay, no, that's not what I asked. When are we leaving? The response, well, it's a 20-minute drive and there might be some traffic. When are we leaving? Or, my children, can you wash the dishes? I don't know where Caleb is. I don't, that's not what I asked. <laughs> can you wash the dishes? We've all been there, right? Like, would you just answer the question that I am asking? And I say all this because at the core of World Communion Sunday is a question. It's always been a question. And I, because I was researching, like, what is World Communion Sunday? And some of you might be walking in for the first time going, wait, what? Like, it's not Christmas, it's not Easter. Maybe you know about Pentecost. What is this thing that happens on the first Sunday of October? What is this? And I kind of needed that myself. I didn't grow up celebrating this. And so every once in a while I go back and say, what, what happened here that we have this thing we call World Communion Sunday? Well, the roots of World Communion Sunday are about answering big questions in the world. It started with a Presbyterian pastor in 1933, and I think that date matters, 1933, who wanted to, quote, promote Christian unity and ecumenical cooperation. And any one of us would stand back and say, that sounds like a great idea, you know? Even us, we're here, there's a church like literally 100 yards down that way. We should talk that we're all together, you know, like, yes, this is a good thing we should talk about. But why? Why? What question were they asking at that particular time that meant World Communion Sunday was an answer to the concerns they had? Well, consider 1933. I mean, you all were there, you remember. The world was still very much recovering from the effects of a world war and, as you all already know, was preparing for another one. The, ground, the, the groundwork was being laid for an even greater world conflict. Of course, Wall Street crashes in 1929, and so in 1933, still very much feeling the effects of the Great Depression. And I know some of you have stories about that, even if that wasn't your story. Your family has stories remembering that. Globally, 
Alongside of all these world wars, we have a league of nations that is starting to emerge saying, guys, we're moving into a situation we can't have nations constantly battling against one another. What if we come together? And so there was an aspiration for nations to work together and all and, and Couple all of this economically, there was famine in the Soviet Union, combined with rapid industrialization there, you know, and nobody's quite sure what's going on in the Soviet Union and where that's going to go. As we said, World War II is getting ready. Well, 1933 sees the rise of Hitler in Germany, and it wouldn't take long before Hitler became a thorn in everybody's side. And I could go on. I don't mean to tell you things that you could Google right now as you sit. But 1933, all of this has converged. And so the 30s were a world that was coming apart. It wasn't feared to come apart. They had just seen it come apart nationally, economically. It's peeling apart. And religion, friends, had its role to play in the world coming apart. We can talk about how religion has played a role in so many wars and in so much suffering. I'm not, here to, I'm not here to cover over any of that. Religion has a big role to play in that. <clears throat> and the League of Nations was a global movement of cooperation. So he said, in a world that is coming apart, can a warring globe survive? In a world that we're discovering is, in connect, is interconnected economically. What does the church say to that? Enter World Communion Sunday. If nothing else, the most basic answer to this was that the depression required churches to see past their theological differences to find ways to live and work together. Because nobody had the money to do anything. So we had to work together. Inspired by the League of Nations saying, how do we come together? Well, churches were right, right behind saying, you know what, we've got to think about what it means to be together rather than apart. And so we tapped our most potent symbol of connectivity and love and partnership. We tapped communion. And we said, here at this table, we can look back and see how the world asking the hard biblical question, is Christ divided? Are you Christians really so at war with yourself that you will literally kill one another? Is that really what this is about? And so through discernment, prayer, and sacrament, we answered, no, that is not what it means to be the church. And so World Communion Sunday became a call back to the core of who we are, the love of God in Christ for all people, and the essential unity of the global church to build a better world. It was an important question with a powerful answer. So the question I have for you this morning is, as we celebrate World Communion Sunday, is that still the question we're asking? Is that question still relevant? And I'm not as sure as I used to be. Of course, ecumenical work and even interfaith work is essential to building a better world. We understand that. But the idea that we are isolated by religion and that we live in our little enclaves and that we fight with one another, that has significantly changed since 1933. I looked up some data. 40% of adults in America have had membership in multiple denominations. That was not true in 1933. You know it and I know it. I don't have those stats, but I'd be willing to bet. And even more, even a higher percentage of people receive content or teaching from, from churches all over the place, even from different religions. I was just having a conversation this morning, said, you can log on right now and find a thousand preachers better than me. They're all accessible right there at your fingertips. And we all, we pull from all sorts of resources. 
we don't seem to have the same reservations about staying in our enclaves. In this way, somebody might say World Communion Sunday's done its job. We see the value of other expressions of faith. But consider, Europe is essentially secularized. It was not in 1933. It is now. And religion's influence in the conflicts of the world seem not as significant. Yes, I know we've gone through Afghanistan, Iraq, all that kind of stuff, and religion was present, but it doesn't function in the same way. Shoot, they even had multiple clerics from multiple faiths bring, install Britain's king. Like, it's a different world now. We're comfortable with one another. Even if we choose some things and reject others, we understand, you know what? It's not so different that we have to go to war with each other about these things. Ecumenical cooperation is more assumed than proclaimed. So on this day... When we gather and we scream, we're together, we're together. See, we actually like each other. Like, I'm afraid the world looks back at us and says, well, that's cool. But we don't really care. We don't. Because what difference does it make? I already live in that thing. And I do believe the world is now asking a very different question. And what they're asking is, is any of this relevant? Does any of this have anything to say to the world? Does our gathering here this morning, or gatherings all over the place, does it actually make a difference in bringing the good news to the world? To evidence this, if you don't know, you've seen the growth of the nuns, and not the flying kind. I mean the people with no religious affiliation. It's the fastest growing group of Americans in our country, uh, religious Americans in our country, those who say, I'm out on this. I'm out on it all. And so they asked a bunch, Pew Research asked a bunch of them and said, why? Why are you out on this thing which has played such a critical role in our country for generations? And Pew Research kind of encapsulates all this. They wrote, overwhelmingly, they think that religious organizations are too concerned with money and power, too focused on rules, and too involved in politics. Let's unpack that for a second. We say, too concerned with money and power, what they're saying to us is, you guys play by the same rules as everybody else, so why should we care? And you guys don't even do it all that well. So if you want to play by money and power, go to other places where they do it better. They talk about rules. Well, rules, the reason religions put on rules, it, their interpretation is it's about self-preservation. You have rules so that you can control people and preserve your institutions rather than share a message. And politics... Well, I'm going to tiptoe back from that line just a little bit. But suffice it to say that what, they're, what we're observing in this country is that religion is following our politics rather than the other way around. That what drives the way we think and the way we engage the world is not our faith. It really is our politics. And then we build a religion that will reinforce our politics. And that, I think, is universal in this country. <clears throat> and so on this day... I hear, I hear echoes of many people suggest you keep telling us you're together, but don't talk to me about world communion when you guys can't even figure out congregational communion. And I'm not talking about us. I'm saying you understand. People are like, churches are squabbling all the time. You talk about world peace. You've got to find peace inside of you first, right? The issue at hand in this moment is no longer our, our religious squabbles and infighting. It's relevance. Do we have a message that makes a difference? What, and this is the question for our time. What does Christ and Christ's church have to offer the world still? 
Does it have a message enough that is big enough and broad enough for the world and yet specific enough and personal enough that it involves me? And increasingly, I hear the church say back, we'll just love and be together. And I'm telling you, when we answer that way, the world says, so you can't do any better than the Beatles? All you need is love. Oh, come on, you guys do better now. The old answer for World Communion Sunday is an important one, but it doesn't answer the question we're asking today. You're like, bro, rescue this sermon. I'm going to do that. There is hope. We have an extraordinarily compelling answer. If we, not the world, well, not yet, but if we will believe it. We have an answer that is global in scope, personal in impact, and compelling, to give our, uh, compelling enough to give our life to. We have this story, but we've got to believe it. We've got to commit ourselves to it. And the answer is Jesus. He has always been the most compelling thing, the most compelling person that has ever walked the face of the earth. And we still tell that story, and it still draws people together. It started in the Gospels, the story in John. You probably, you probably just kind of heard it, you know, skipped over it. Some Greeks wanted to come see Jesus. And that wasn't rude. They're not, you know, say those people. No, he was just saying some people, it, this was Passover time. Jesus has gone up to the temple. Jesus is about to be crucified, but it's Passover. So everybody goes up to the temple. And naturally, those people who were connected to the temple, the Jews would go up to celebrate, you know, this really holy festival. But what they discovered is that there were some Greeks, some non-Jews who were going up as well. People wanted to be a part of this thing. And so some, some people from outside the community were showing up and they wanted to see Jesus. They're like, this guy's got something going on. We'd love to talk to him. And so right out of the gate, right out of the gate, as Jesus enters into Jerusalem, there is a global, global sense to this. This Passover feast, people have come from all over the world, and they want to see Jesus. The world was fascinated by what this little rabbi from Galilee was doing. Those outside Jesus' teaching were compelled to see him. And so whatever Jesus is about to do, he has chosen a global and international setting for it to happen. People are there. People will see him. And the event that he has chosen to, take, to, to carry out in the context of this global setting in the middle of Jerusalem is his cross. Which is why Jesus says, unless a seed falls to the earth and dies, it remains just a seed. But if it dies, and he's talking about himself, if it dies, it will bear much fruit. Right out of the gate, Jesus has a global sense for the work that he has come to do. It is not just for his little group of people. Before he was even crucified, Jesus is thinking about the world, that what he will do on the cross is for every single soul. And he continues on. And he says, now is the judgment of this world. And you're like, well, that doesn't sound good. Judgment never comes across as, I cannot wait for that. That's going to be great. No, judgment sounds terrible, but draw back. Jesus goes up on that cross, and the, the cross is the judgment of the world. But what is that judgment? It is not condemnation. We as Christians, we look upon that cross, and we say, there we see Jesus' love poured out, literally, as he pours out his body on behalf of our brokenness. 
The judgment of the world is not a judgment of guilt. It is a judgment of love. And Jesus says, when I am lifted up from the earth, so he already knew he was going to be crucified. He's, he's talking in riddles, though. He says, when I am lifted up, when I am put onto that cross, what will happen? I will draw all people to myself. There will be this gravitational center that the world will not be able to resist, try as they might. That the whole and all people, not just the right people, not just holy people, not just moral people, not just church people, I will draw all people to myself. Not compel, not force, but with this unmistakable curiosity for what is going on with that. Because the cross of Christ is the most compelling thing we have ever seen. And to this point, and I want, you to, I want to illustrate to you why I know Jesus knew this. And it comes from our reading in Psalm 22. I want you to take a look at it. We picked up Psalm 22 at the end of it. And it's this wonderful, joyful thing, right? Does anyone here know how Psalm 22 begins? It begins, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It is the psalm that Jesus prays on the cross. And we know how Jesus, and we know from Jewish prayers that when the gospel writers say Jesus cried this out, what he was doing was praying the whole prayer. They, they weren't going to write it out. And so they said, this is the psalm that Jesus prays. And at the beginning, he says, why have you forsaken me? But hear what he says at the end. Jesus would have prayed this for us all. All the ends of the earth shall remember and turn to the Lord. The poor shall eat and be satisfied. Those who seek God will praise God forever. This is how it ends on the cross. Jesus is celebrating. The judgment of the world is love, and through that cross, things will be set right again. When I am lifted up, I will draw all people to myself. What is the great hope of the world? It is not churches getting along. Oh, that's important. It is Jesus Christ and his cross, and his judgment, which is love, and his forgiveness, which is for all. Who? All. And in this way, Jesus is either the hope of the world or no hope at all. We are left with no other choice. Jesus is either the hope of the world or he is no hope at all. He was enough of a hope that Paul picks up on this. Paul is so emphatic. He says, we have inside ourselves now the ministry of reconciliation, bringing together that which was broken. And this ministry of reconciliation certainly can be denominations coming back to each other or religions finding common ground. But really what Paul is talking about, he's like, it's about repairing the relationships between people. God reconciled the world to himself and says, now you are Christ's ambassadors. I need you to reconcile people to one another. And he says, when we do that, that the world becomes the righteousness of God. I'm not exactly sure what that means, but it sounds awesome, and it sounds big, and it sounds world-changing. That we become the righteousness of God. It is both a message of personal transformation for you and for me, and it is a message of global transformation for the world. And so we're left with, do we believe that do we believe that and we ask that question every time we take communion because communion is not just love not just peace it is all those things of course not just togetherness it is that as well but no communion is Christ crucified when I am lifted up I will draw all people to myself 
Uniquely in Christ, death and sin have been overcome. And in communion, we participate in that death and are invited to share that death and that resurrection with the world. And after he was resurrected, Jesus told us, he told his apostles, he says, I want you to go into all the world, worldwide, I want you to go into all the world and make disciples, make people who will follow me and teach them everything I've taught you. And so you see where we're asking a different question of Worldwide Communion Sunday. It is still worldwide, but it is that we have a story that is still relevant for the world. And there's still a place for us to answer the question that the world is asking. And friends, I'm here to tell you, we have tried to kind of be nice, be together, kind of dumb down some things, you know, so, every, so you can accommodate everybody. Like we've tried this lowest common denominator thing, and it has only eroded sort of our understanding of what faith is all about. And I'm here to suggest that in Worldwide Communion Sunday, we put Christ back at the center again and say, you know what? We don't need to be fighting. We don't need to be wrestling with each other, but we do need to proclaim Christ and him crucified because he is either the hope of the world or he is no hope at all. And for me... Christ is absolutely the hope of the world. And in fact, he is the only relevant thing. And we still have a responsibility to call the world to him so that we might grow in power. No. So that the world might be changed. The world might become the righteousness of God. That we as Christ ambassadors bring a story that will change the world. And we, on World Communion Sunday and every Communion Sunday after, can proclaim that yet again. The compelling story of Christ and him crucified. Amen.